Hey, we are so glad that you're here. I'm glad to have my friend Jana up on my right, on your left. Uh, she is interpreting because we have some new friends that are here uh, that just need some assistance. It would be so cool, wouldn't it, to, on some Sunday, have interpretation for the deaf and a Spanish interpreter and a Thai interpreter and a Polish interpreter all sending out the message so that people could hear clearly in their heart language um, God's truth. Uh, uh, Maybe someday. We'll see what God has in store. Um, We are in this series. We're in the next to the last week of this series from the book of Esther that we've called Veiled. We've called it Veiled because God is kind of hidden in the story of Esther. He's working at every turn. But you don't see him expressly all over the place. If today is your first time... Or maybe you've missed some weeks. Let me just encourage you, even as I'm speaking, to open up your Bible and just kind of scan through the first four chapters of Esther uh, so that you can get up to date. And then when you go home, you uh, can take some time, uh, go to the app, go online to the web, and you can catch the other five messages that will bring you up to speed for today's part of the story because it's going to feel like you're jumping into the middle of a, uh, of a series because you are. I guess. Uh, And that way you can get caught up. Here's the deal. Uh, The story of Esther is about this this orphan girl who in in an amazing way becomes queen of one of the world's superpowers, the country of Persia. Esther ascends to the role of queen. Her husband is a guy named Xerxes. I want to see you spell Xerxes. Very nice. That's good. King Xerxes is her husband, and um, and Esther's Jewish, but she doesn't tell anybody that. She, that's that's kind of a hidden secret from everybody in the palace. Xerxes has a, an assistant, his right hand man, a guy named Haman. That was a little bit better than first service. All right, uh, Haman, Haman is this guy who's full of himself, and in his position as second in the kingdom, everybody is supposed to bow down to him. Literally, they're supposed to bow down when he walks. Esther's cousin, Mordecai, um, when, when he encounters Haman, he doesn't bow down and says, you know what, I'm Jewish, I can't bow down to this man. And it drives Haman crazy. Haman goes to the king and says, you know what, there are people here that are subversive, we've got to get rid of them, we've got to kill them all. And Xerxes says, okay, not knowing that his wife is one of those people, that these, these Jewish people. So uh, Esther's just kind of oblivious to it. Mordecai, when he hears that this law has been passed, that all of the Jews are going to be killed, Mordecai sends word to Esther and says, Hey, look, you're the queen. You've got to go talk to the king and get him to change this law. And Esther says, I can't do that. If I go to the king and he hasn't asked me to come, he will kill me. That's the law. You can't go talk to the king um, uh, without being summoned first. And Mordecai says, hey, Esther, don't think that because you're queen that you're going to be safe in this. If you don't stand up now, you're going to die. You and your family, you're going to die. God's going to bring salvation from someplace else. But who knows, maybe God made you queen for this very moment, for such a time as this. That that kind of does the recap that gets us to where we are in Esther chapter 4, verse 15. If you've got your Bibles, be sure and open them up. Go there. You'll see it on screen. You can look in the app. Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Mordecai said, you've got to go. Um, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Mordecai says, Esther, you've, God has made you queen for this very moment. And Esther says, okay, here's the deal. If God has done that, we've got to pray. It doesn't say pray expressly. It's, it, uh, Esther calls for them to fast. But fasting and prayer are always tied together. Fasting is designed uh, to, for a person to abstain from food or drink for a certain period of time so that you can concentrate fully on God. That's what happened in the Old Testament. There are a lot of reasons why people fasted. Sometimes they fasted to repent of their sins. There was this desire to say to God, you know what, God, I have made a mess of my life. And so for some period of time, they chose not to eat or drink. Sometimes people fasted and prayed to seek God's direction. There was a significant event that was happening in their life, and they said, God, we need you. I need you to show me what I'm supposed to do at this point in time. And so they fasted and prayed. Sometimes it was for people to simply humble themselves before God to declare their dependence on him. And sometimes when people fasted and prayed, it was, it was one of the byproducts of that was that it just sharpened their senses about everything that was going on around them. In this case, Esther says, you know what, we've got to have all of the Jews in the capital city of Susa fast and pray because if I go into the king on my own power, I'm going to die. We've got to have God involved in this process. Let me just say this for a second. Um, fasting is not a practice that, that we do with any regularity. Uh, most Western Christians don't. That doesn't mean that we should, that we shouldn't, though. Fasting is a, a tool that we can use to, um, to really come before God and to use that absence of food or drink as a, as a spur for us to really focus on God. Because what happens when you fast is that um, you, you say, God, I, man, I want you to be the center of my attention. I want to talk to you. I want to be aware of you all the time. And for most of us in our life, we get to that place. We start doing work. We start doing stuff around the house. We start doing stuff with our family. And we forget completely about that commitment to, to be one-on-one with God. When we fast, what happens after about four or five hours? That stomach starts to say, feed me, right? We start to get thirsty if we're not drinking at all either. And, and those hunger pains, that thirst, become a constant reminder to, to be in God's presence and to seek his face. Fasting, it's, it's just such a great tool to use. In this case, um, Esther says, uh, uh, we need, to, we need to fast for three days. And she wasn't saying 72 hours because you may be thinking medically, oh, you can't go without water for 72 hours. What she was really saying, this is probably, it probably happens in the late afternoon or early evening. She sends out the word and says, we need to fast until, until the third day. So it's that night, the whole next day, and then the next morning they break their fast and Esther is going to go in and go see the king. My, my, my prayer, uh, this is something that's been on my heart for, for um, a number of months. We need, as a church, to be much more committed to praying to God. 
We need, it, we need to do that individually, and we need to do it collectively. Man, I would love it if we had a group of people during this service that were praying in the prayer room for what happens in here. I would love to have a group of people who are praying during first service for what happens in here. So uh, if you're interested in that, just shoot me a note and let me know, because we would love to have that happen, because God answers. He responds when we pray. You know, Esther is looking at this crisis, and let me just say this in the context of these verses that we've just looked at. You can't lone ranger a crisis. Let me say that again. You can't lone ranger a crisis. What do I mean by that? You can't go through a crisis by yourself. You can't do it alone. Esther says, you know what? I have this secret posse in the palace. I've got this group of ladies that are going to pray with me. They're going to fast with me that I can surround myself they, they were her attendants who were probably either Jewish, and if they weren't Jewish, they were so compelled by Esther's faith in God that, that they would do whatever she asked and that they would fast and pray with her as well. Um, even though nobody else in the palace may have known that she was Jewish, Esther was connected to the Jews who, who lived in the capital city of Susa. She says to Mordecai, you know what, spread the word to the community, the community in the capital, to pray and to fast for me before I go to the king. Esther had a posse in the palace. She had, a, she had a community in the capital that she was connected to. Hear this clearly. If you wait to connect to a group of Christians in deep relationship until you're in crisis, it's too late. You won't have the people around you as stuff is falling apart. You need to be in a life group. You need to have a spiritual mentor. You need to have an accountability partner before your life falls apart, before your marriage crashes and burns, before you lose your job, before the police show up at your door for that secret sin, before that diagnosis that comes from the doctor or the hospital. You've got to be able to invest in a group of people in order to withdraw when that time of need comes. Esther had a small group of women around her. She had connections to the Jews who were in the community, and they were ready to say, yes, we'll pray and fast for you in this time of crisis. There's a time to pray, but there's also a time to act. You know, Ecclesiastes 3 has some famous verses. If you were around in the 60s, you remember a song by the birds called Turn, Turn, Turn that took these verses directly from Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heavens, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, and in verse 7 for us today, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Esther recognized that there was a time for action. She said, you've got to pray, and you know what? When we're done praying and fasting, I'm going to go in and see the king. There's a time to act. There was a guy in California in the, in the early 90s, a guy named Larry Walters, who, um, who as a child wanted to be a, uh, a pilot uh, for the Air Force. He dreamt of flying, and um, his eyesight was bad, and so he couldn't fly. He, he wasn't eligible for the Air Force, so he became a truck driver instead. Um, when he was uh, 32 years old, 33 years old, something like that, he decided he had to take action, had to do something. So he took his life savings, $4,000, and he bought 75 weather balloons, helium, and spent $110 on an aluminum chair from Sears. 
Lawn Chair Larry then had this idea that he would fill those weather balloons with helium, that he would rise up to about 30 feet above the, the surface of the earth, and that he would be, just be able to float and watch and fly in that sense. He took up some sandwiches, he took up some beer, he took up his BB gun so that he could shoot down the, the weather balloons when the time came and he'd float back down to earth. The only problem was with that volume of helium that when they released the tethers that held him on earth, his chair began to ascend a thousand feet a minute for 16 minutes. So in a period of 16 minutes, he's at 16,000 feet above the earth in his chair with his BB gun, his sandwiches, his beer, and I imagine he was probably pretty scared. The, the wind begins to blow, and it blows Larry Walters, lawn chair Larry, um, out of where he was, uh, where he had raced from uh, above his girlfriend's backyard, and he floats into the landing pattern of Los Angeles International Airport. At that point, a pilot from a Delta flight and from a TWA flight call the tower and say, there is this guy in a lawn chair... In the sky, in, the, in our way, you've got to get him out of there. Uh, uh, Lunch here, Larry shot down a couple of the balloons. He then dropped his BB gun and uh, over a period of hours then began to float back to earth. He ended up tangled in some lines. They got him down. And when he got back to earth, the police were there and reporters were there for this guy who had gone to 16,000 er, 16, feet above the ground. When he, land, when he landed on earth, this is what he said to the reporters. It was something I had to do. I had this dream for 20 years, and if I hadn't done it, I think I would have ended up on the funny farm. I had to take action. I had to do something. Perhaps a better example of the need to take action is Nathan Hale. During spring break, Deb and Mike and I were in Chicago, and we were walking up the magnificent mile where all of those stores are, all those retail stores. And there in front of the Chicago Tribute building, in this beautiful Gothic structure, there's this statue that you can see on screen of Nathan Hale. And I thought, good night. Why is Nathan Hale there? And, and, uh, and so I just spent some time looking at his life. Nathan Hale, when he was 14 years old, went to Yale University to college. He graduated with honors at age 18 and uh, took a teaching job in Connecticut. In, in 1775, when he's 20 years old, the Revolutionary War began, and Nathan Hale enlisted in the Continental Army. Uh, within several months, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Continental Army, uh, and then just a short time after that, he received a promotion and became a first lieutenant. His unit was sent to Manhattan, to, the, to New York City, to Manhattan, as the British began to attack um, Manhattan in the spring of 1776. Um, the, the Brits conquered the lower half of Manhattan, and Nathan's, Nathan Hale's unit was stationed there to, to make sure that they didn't advance any further. In September of 1776, General Washington was desperate for information for what was going on behind uh, the British lines in Manhattan. And he asked for volunteers to go sneak behind enemy lines and, and essentially become spies. Only one person volunteered. It was Nathan Hale. So four days after he had volunteered, they snuck him on a boat into the southern part of Manhattan and he existed there, lurking in the shadows, sneaking around, trying to see what the British were doing. About 10 days later, he was recognized by someone who was loyal to the crown, and they turned him in as a spy. The next day, 
in the middle of Manhattan, Nathan Hale was hung. And he, before he was hung, he said these famous words that we, that we know now, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Nathan Hale said, you know what? I've got to take action. The stakes are too high. I've got to do something. Esther says, I will go to the king. The fate of my people is at stake. When she said, I will go, it was her decision point. It was her line in the sand. For all of us, there are lots of things in our lives where we have to make a decision. Are we going to be in or out? Are we going to sink or are we going to swim? Are we going to advance or are we going to retreat? Are we going to hold a grudge or are we going to forgive? Are we going to serve ourselves or are we going to serve others? Are we going to pursue comfort or risk? Are we going to make sure that we go for safety or danger? We have to make decisions as we follow Jesus. You know, there's a danger for all of us in procrastination. We make lots of jokes about procrastinating jobs that need to be done. Yeah, I'm going to get them done someday. I, I believe with all my heart that sometimes Satan's goal is not to get us to deny Jesus. His goal is to simply have us put it off, our relationship with him, to put it off, to say, you know what, yeah, I, I know I need to follow Jesus. I'm going to do that someday. I know I need to be baptized. I, that's a step I want to take. I'm, I'm going to do that someday. You know, I'm going, to be, I'm going to start being more intentional about my giving financially to the church. I'm, uh, someday. I'm going to start that someday. I know I need to join a life group. I need to get serious about being a disciple of Jesus. I'm, I'm going to do that. Maybe I'll do that in the fall, this fall. Maybe in the spring. Maybe after the first of the year. It's easy for us to say, I know I need help with my addiction. I know I need to break off that relationship. I know I need to quit watching that stuff online. And, I, and I'm going to start tomorrow or next week. Esther says... You pray, I'll pray, my girls will pray, but then I'm going. And if I perish, I perish. You know, this is the third example of character, of of people standing up for what they believe in in the book of Esther. Back in chapter 1, remember Vashti says, you know what, I don't care what the king says, I am not going to that drunken party. I'm not going to go. And there was a price to be paid. She lost her position as queen as a result of that decision to stand for what she believed in. Mordecai, Haman comes in and everybody's supposed to bow. And Mordecai says, you know what? I can't do it. I'm a Jew. I can't bow to this guy. And there was a price to be paid. What happened? A law was passed that was going to kill all of the entire Jewish nation because of Mordecai's disobedience. In this case, Esther stands and says, I've got to take action. And if I perish, I perish. Esther knew this problem was so big that only God could take care of it. And she understood that she wasn't putting her life in Xerxes' hands. She was putting her life in God's hand. We can trust the unknown future to a sovereign God, a God who is all-powerful, that knows us, that loves us, and has proven himself trustworthy time and time again. Chapter 5. On the third day, 
Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. Can you picture that in your mind? When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet that I've prepared for him. If, if you look at that closely, you realize that Esther is putting her faith into action. She already believes that God is going to protect her, that he's going to save her. Because she has a banquet ready to go for, for Xerxes and Haman already. She had prepared it before she ever entered the palace. Esther's stepping out in faith. Verse 6. Uh, the, the, um, the, uh, Xerxes says to, to uh, the people, bring Haman at once so that, so that we may do what Esther asks. King and Haman come and they eat dinner. Verse 6, as they were drinking wine after dinner, the king again asked Esther, now what's your petition? It will be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I'll prepare for them. Then I'll answer the king's question. If you've never read the book of Esther, right now you're going, what? What is going on? She's going to the king. She's got people praying. She goes to the king and the king says, yeah, Esther, whatever you want, you can have it up to half the kingdom. You know, as, as long as it's not crazy, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, uh, here's what I want. I want you to come to dinner tonight and bring Haman. And so he comes to dinner. After they eat, he's, he's uh, drinking some wine. And he says, okay, Esther, what do you want? And she says, uh, come to dinner tomorrow. Um, it's, it's been interesting for me to study. Commentators say all kinds of things about why Esther did this delay. Some believe that she just got scared. You know, that as, as Xerxes says, what is it you want? She just kind of went, uh, come to dinner. And the next night, she again went through the process and said, come to dinner. Some commentators say, no, 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 it's not that at all. This is a cultural thing. That in the East, in Persia, that the, the art of negotiation is not a rapid process like it is for us in the West, where we say, what do you want? Somebody tells us, and we say, yeah, I can give it to you or not. That, that in this part of the world, at this time, that there was this give and take that, that involved this extended period of negotiation. So Esther's, Esther was just acting in a way that was culturally appropriate for her in saying, no, not right now. Thank you. Thank you for accepting me. Let's talk about it tonight. Let's talk about it tomorrow and, and go through the process that way. Some commentators uh, think that Esther perceived that Xerxes was in a bad mood. And she just said, ah, nope, not, not the time. Now, that never happens in your house, right? That you have to have a conversation and you walk in and say, you know what? We'll wait. I see an awful lot of elbows in people's sides right now, okay? Um, some, some commentators believe that especially Esther's first approach to the king, that there were so many people around that Esther, that Esther didn't want to disclose that she was Jewish in the presence of everybody who was in the palace. That, that might be. And some people believe that Esther had been queen now for five years and she had seen the way that the, 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 
politics in the palace work and that Esther actually was astute politically and she was playing Xerxes. She was getting him fat and happy and drunk so that he would say yes at the appropriate time. She was getting him saying yes over and over and over again so that when she finally made the request, he couldn't do anything else but say yes. That he couldn't do anything else but reverse his decree to kill the Jews. The bottom line is we don't know why. There's, there's lots of thoughts. Your guess is as good as mine. There certainly isn't a clear answer in Scripture as to why she delays. But if you come back next week, you may see what God does in working through that process. Esther says, you know what? At the second banquet, Xerxes, king, I'm going to tell you why I've bothered you. Verse 9. Haman went out that day. Haman? Thank you. Haman went out that, that day happy and in high spirits. When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. That's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Here's an idea. Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 75 cubits, or of uh, 50 cubits. That's 75 feet. It's a seven-story building. Have a pole set up to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Haman is on top of the world until he sees Mordecai. He brags to his wife and his friends about how good he is, how important he is, all the stuff that he has, until he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai just drives him crazy. Why is that? It's because Haman's identity, Haman's identity was defined by his wealth, his stuff, his family, his power, and his position. Mordecai was under Haman's skin because Mordecai wasn't impressed by any of it. His unwillingness to buy into Mordecai's system discredited that system, and Haman couldn't stand it. Don't miss this in this story. Hatred and bitterness will eat you alive. When you allow hatred and bitterness to take root in your life, it will destroy your spirit like cancer will destroy your body. When we, when we allow hatred and bitterness to exist in us, it only hurts us. It doesn't hurt the other person. Mordecai's not impacted at all by Haman's rage this particular night. Mordecai's oblivious to it. Only God, only God can fill those needs that we have. Let me just say this too. You know, it's easy to have success and joy and excitement robbed by discouraging words. Haman experiences all of this worldly success in this moment. You know, he's on top of the world and this one guy just 
destroys it all. It's easy for us at work to do a presentation and to just hit it out of the park with that presentation and have, you know, have a great response from the, from the bigwiggers in the company, do all that stuff, go back to your office and have somebody say, you know, you know, bottom of page 12 in that last paragraph, those facts weren't right. That, those weren't right. And to have all of that success just dissipate in a second, to, to, you know, just have it wound you. Don't let that happen. Don't be one of those people. Don't do it on Sunday morning. Here's the end of the story for today. Don't miss. God is working in the middle of risk and danger. When, Hester, when Esther says, you know what? I'm going to the king, and if I perish, I perish. God is working right in the center of that. In the middle of risk and danger, our character gets revealed. Some people say, you know what, your character is forged in a time of crisis. That's, that's when it really comes together. I, I don't think that's true at all. I think our character is formed and forged in the little decisions that we make day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Do I obey God in this command that he's given? Yes or no? Do I choose to be sensitive to God's leading in this? Do I act with integrity? Am I honest as I deal with people? Our character is formed in the day-by-day, moment-by-moment decisions we make. Will, will I go where God sends me? Do I speak up when he prompts me? Do I live to honor him in the shadows when nobody else is watching? Then when the crisis comes, our character is revealed. The crisis will come. Um, uh, Greg Laurie, who's a pastor and an author, said this, big doors swing on small hinges. I love that image. Big doors swing on small hinges. Um, The little decisions we make in life pave the way for the big decisions that ultimately come for all of us. He also said, faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. When people say, When my marriage failed, my faith in God died. When I watched cancer eat away at the body of my godly grandma, I quit believing in God. When I stood up for what was right at work and I got fired as a result, I decided God can't be good. When I discovered that the pastor had been having multiple affairs, I was done with any pretense of Christianity. When people say that, know that their, that person's faith was misplaced. Their faith was in their spouse or in their job or in their pastor or in their grandma. It wasn't in God. In order for your faith to be trusted, it has to be tested. It has to be tested. It has to exist in a place where it lives in a dark and difficult and deadly circumstances. So what happens with Esther? Does she finally tell Xerxes what she wants? How does he respond? What happens to Haman? Does Mordecai end up impaled on that pole? Come back next week for our final message in the series. William Borden lived about 100 years ago. He was was, uh, from Chicago. He was the son of a very rich family. When he was a young teenager, he became a follower of Jesus at at the church that became ultimately Moody Bible Church under the teaching of R.A. Torrey. After he graduated from high school, his rich parents 
gave him a gap year. They gave him a trip that went around the world to explore the world. Pretty fun uh, graduation trip. Micah, don't count on it. Um, in London, after, after uh, Borden had been through the Far East and ended up back in London, in London, R.A. Torrey was preaching again. And he went to hear Torrey preach. And at that message, Borden said, you know what, I can't give my life to anything except the call of God. I'm going to go be a missionary wherever God leads. He went back to the U.S., um, went to college at Yale, and, uh, and as a freshman student, began with a friend to have a, a prayer time, a daily prayer time. That one student that he began to pray with, a, a, a third student came in and was a part of that. By the end of his freshman year, 150 students were gathering to pray every day. By the time that Borden graduated from Yale, 1,000 of 1,300 students were gathering daily to pray because of the influence of William Borden. While he was there as a student, he launched a mission to, to the homeless in that area. Um, one well-traveled English visitor, when asked what impressed him most about America at this time, is said to have replied, the sight of that young millionaire kneeling with his arm around a bum in the Yale Hope Mission. When he graduated, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary, determined to work with a a group of Muslim people in China that numbered three million people and had no knowledge of Jesus. After he graduated, he sailed to Cairo, Egypt, to learn the Arabic language. Three months later, after living and working among the people of Cairo, he contracted spinal meningitis. Nineteen days later, he died. On his grave were inscribed these words. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. It's said that in in Borden's Bible, there were three things that had been written throughout his life. When when he decided to become a missionary, uh, he had uh, written in the back of his Bible, no reserves, no reserves. Going to do whatever it takes, no reserves. Uh, when he graduated from Yale, he had all kinds of lucrative job offers. People said, we want to hire you. We want you to come work for us. You can, man, you'll be able to go far. And he wrote in his Bible, no retreats. When he was in Egypt, as he was dying of meningitis, the last inscription in his Bible is said to have been, no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. That's the challenge for us today. We're going to finish the message with a song from the band. We're not going to sing it. I want to, I want to just encourage you to listen to it. You can watch on screen. There's video that goes along with it um, that comes from the movie uh, Night with the King. You'll be able to see the story of Esther through the song as the band sings. I've got to believe that God has some really big steps for us to take individually, collectively today important things that God wants you to respond to. He's working and we need to say yes. Here's your prayer as the van plays. It's a prayer from a series we did a year ago. God, who did you create me to be? What do you want me to do? And where do you want me to go?